more like a chore to try to like keep up and not get behind to where I, f I don't feel like I'm like spending time seriously thinking about things. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. just like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta get through this. So I know, you know, what happened or know yeah. what to talk about. Well, yeah, maybe this is a good thing to talk about on the pod of reading the Bible through the year is probably not something everyone should do every year. No, but probably it, unless you're like, an avid reader. Yeah, but even then, you know, it might be kind of tough, but it might be good for everybody to do it at least once in their lifetime. Yeah, I think that's fine. And I, what I would probably recommend for somebody such as myself, if you have one of those make it through the Bible in a year plans, don't feel like you, like follow the plan, but don't try to hit it in one year. If it takes you two or three years, yeah. as long as you kind of follow the structure, just march through it slower. And if it takes you a few years, fine, but you'll still get through reading the Bible in its entirety. Yeah. At least I once. like that. Yeah. That's what I would do. There for are myself. two and three year reading plans. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there's this thing called the Book of Common Prayer that has the lectionary readings. And I think it takes you through the whole Bible over the course of three years, including the Apocrypha, Ooh. actually. And I think you go through the Psalms twice in the or once a year, maybe. I, I forget what it is. But um, yeah, there, there are plans like that readily available. Yeah. I would say know yourself, follow mm. the volume of reading that you can realistically do consistently. A decent amount to do with it too is that it's summer and I'm doing other things and I'm just not taking the time to prioritize it like I should. Yeah, that's a good call. Whereas in the winter, it's like there's just less going on. So yeah. there's more time to focus on it. That makes a lot of sense. Maybe when we come, come up with our Bible reading plan, we'll have really light sections during the summer because you can go out and do things during the summer. But in the winter when you're stuck inside anyway. Yeah. You can have longer readings. Yeah, it was definitely easier when it's like, well, there's nothing to do outside. I'm inside all day because it's cold or, you know, ugly outside. Mm. It's 40 and gray rather than 80 and sunny. It's like, I'm going and doing stuff outside. AJ, how has your experience been as we are now into the month of August? Yeah, I think it's like some tough weeks, like Matthew was saying. I do think that there is value in pushing yourself, too. Going off of what you said, this is not something that everybody should do every year, maybe once every five or ten years. As you may be struggling to read through these larger sections of Scripture, you might feel like you're missing out on detail stuff, stuff you want to look at and study more. But I think reading in these larger chunks, you are picking up stuff that maybe you aren't realizing consciously, um, connections that you'll make later, where if you were studying a couple verses every day, you know, in a much slower pace, you would miss some of these larger things connections that you would make and learn by by reading larger chunks so you may think that you're missing out on stuff by not being able to run after details but also you 
by doing that, you miss other things too. So that's why there's value in, in reading at different paces at different times. Yeah, and I think using some of the tools that are available could help you get through some of the confusion as well. So even placing when the events recorded in the book are taking place on a timeline and understanding how they relate to each other. So as we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah today. Yeah, Aaron, we're at week 33, and that's days 225 through 231. These guys are contemporaries. They're living at the same time, operating at the same time. But where Ezra is focusing on the temple, Nehemiah is focusing on the wall around Jerusalem. So just to even have some of those basic concepts in mind might be really helpful. Um, And you can use your study Bibles. I really would recommend, again, Eugene Peterson's tiny book, The Invitation, because it's so short. It's like just a page or two about each book of the Bible. So it's easier to keep these things in your mind. Uh, But placing them on, on their relationship to each other chronologically could be really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Reading the big chunks of the Old Testament, it did make the stories like flow together better and be like, oh, okay, that happened actually right after this other thing. And yeah, if you've just kind of heard them independently in the past, you don't really know where they fall in the timeline. So that is something that I did notice that's like positive. I think an example from our reading, I really enjoyed uh, Nehemiah chapter nine, where they have that corporate confession and rededicate themselves and they reference the Exodus. And since we have read and studied that within the last six months, eight months, and we're familiar with that. And we said at that time, how important that is to reading the rest of the old Testament Mm -hmm. in the whole Bible. And if you hadn't read that for a really long time and you were finally getting to Nehemiah, you know, some of those details might, might be lost, but again, having read that somewhat recently, you know, we can we can narrow in on some of the importance of that. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because even the way that the biblical authors teach and write, they're drawing on things that we've already covered. So in Nehemiah, we have a really nice summary of Israel's history where we might start to get lost in where we are and what's happened. He provides a really nice reminder of where we're at in the Old Testament. So I think you're right there. Our our reading of it informs us as we try to understand that text, but then that text also helps us place everything we've already read. It was a little confusing because I didn't read any of the like the footnotes, but as I got a little ways through Nehemiah, I was like, I think that Ezra and Nehemiah are happening at the, like, the same time. Yeah, and then that becomes clear when he, Nehemiah and Ezra are in the same place at the same time for that reading. Also, I didn't catch that one was rebuilding the temple and one was rebuilding the wall. I thought they were trying to rebuild the same thing and they were just giving, you know, their own account of it, but they were building different things apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Ezra focuses on the building of the temple. Nehemiah focuses on the building of the walls around Jerusalem. Because he was the one that was dealing with all those different gates, right? Yeah. It's like my Bible actually has like a picture of it with all the gates. So that was kind of nice. Yeah, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, the yeah. fountain gate, the angle, the water gate, the horse gate, the inspection gate. Oh, dude, that's a beautiful picture. Yeah. It's 
got all the all the gates in the city. So that kind of helped me understand what was going on a bit. Yeah, now I've never been to Jerusalem, so I've never kind of walked the city, but I see, you know, it just seems like a huge city. As you guys read through Ezra, what were some of the main features of the account, some highlights, or even some questions that you might want to raise for discussion? Seems like there was always, actually in both books, and since they were both happening at the same time, it kind of makes sense that there was a lot of opposition to what God had called these people to do. Even the people themselves that were there doing the rebuilding had their own issues, too, that Nehemiah had to, and Ezra had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Intermarriage with the non-Jewish people was the main one. Yeah, the very thing that really led to their exile continued on as they're trying to return from exile and make a home in Jerusalem again. Yeah, that's pretty much all I got out of it was there was a lot of back and forth of we're going to do this, this king said to do it, and then people are stopping them, and they're like, no, 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 this is what they said. Here's what the document or something. I don't know. There's just a lot of back and forth, stopping and starting building the wall, or, well, the temple, I guess, here. Yeah, because you have really three kings in view. You have Cyrus, who sends them back, Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus, you know, different names used, who puts everything on pause. And then you have Darius, who starts things up again. Uh, But they seem to be working even before they get permission to keep the the rebuilding going. Uh, So it does get a little bit confusing with all of the dynamics at play. It's a little bit confusing because you have different people who were in Israel in around Jerusalem the whole time that the exile took place and they're still there and now they're feeling threatened because the city's being rebuilt and the temple's being rebuilt so you have some devious activity from these two guys who are trying to disrupt everything surreptitiously sometimes overtly at other times Um, but all along you have Ezra the scribe who knows the law of the Lord very well directing things. Um, But when we get to chapter 3, verse 10, and they complete the foundation of the temple, what, what did you guys feel as you read the description of the people who looked on at this completed foundation? This part did stick out to me a little bit, but I I didn't know what I thought about it. Yeah, I think It's interesting because when Solomon built the temple, the big celebration happened at the dedication and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But here they've just completed the foundation. And even based on just the completion of the foundation, everyone who had seen the first temple before it was destroyed knew this temple does not, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be as glorious and as grand. So they're weeping and crying while the younger people who probably had never seen the temple, the first temple, they're, they're happy because the job's done. And these two things come together. And I think the way that these people respond to the foundation of the temple is really descriptive of how Israel's life will be until the glory of the Lord finally fills the temple 
when Jesus walks into it, and even after that, where there's a mixture of rejoicing in God's goodness and a lament about what was lost. Um, Israel's never going to be the same again, and that's really sad. Yeah, that's the part that stuck out to me was, you know, a lot of the people rejoicing, but then the older people that had seen the first temple you know, being sad and weeping. I don't know. I was thinking about that a lot, just that kind of that, I don't know, dynamic, but, you know, I'm glad they included it. It's interesting that they included it, but I think it's, you know, it's important because there's, I don't know, there's a, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson in it with that contrast, you know, looking at the same thing. They have different perspectives based on where they're at. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I need to think about that more, but I thought it was, I thought it was good that it was included. I liked that part. Yeah, and I don't know totally how to think about it, but there are probably some lessons for us as we look at ways that we have found fellowship with God, and then when we've walked away from Him and returned, there there is something lost there, even as there's hope for future restoration and forgiveness. Um, so we don't want to maybe get into the mode of saying, well, because I know God will always forgive me for anything I do wrong. I just don't care about what, what he wants from me. I think that's what Paul gets at in Romans a little bit too. And even the way that he laments the fact that many Israelites are not returning to the Lord through Jesus Christ. I think there's always that mixture of we know God is gracious, but we also know that in our rebellion against God, something is lost there that that we could otherwise participate in 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 the life of god and enjoy more fully Um, but as we progress through the letter people continue to work they build the temple there is rejoicing when the temple is is completed but once again there's no description of the glory of the lord filling the temple so the book really brings about a little bit of sorrow, even with the joy as people start to return to the Lord. I think, not to backtrack, like the celebrating and the weeping dynamic there, I think it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a good, I think it's a good example of just probably human experience. Mm-hmm. Not, not to make like a unimportant comparison, but I think the dynamics are the same that moment it seems kind of like if you had a dog that you loved and then it dies and you're really sad when it dies but then you kind of get over it and you're kind of fine for a while but then like 10 years later you decide to get another dog getting that new dog is gonna bring up those old emotions and make you think of how great that old dog was and even when you get a new dog you might be really sad at first because it reminds you oh yeah I lost that dog 10 years ago that I loved and now I'm kind of replacing it, but not really. It's not going to be the same, but this this dog will probably be pretty good too. But it's not going to replace, you know, the one I had that was so great. You know what I mean? That that yeah. moment, that moment of the newness, it something about it is unique where it stirs up the old or what was lost. And I think that's just a common human experience, but it's just interesting. I don't know. It's interesting to me to think about. Yeah, I think there's something there because we we experience those things and here the bible is really accurate and authentically descriptive of human experience yeah. and that's something that the bible helps us 
with as we navigate our lives, right? It, it doesn't sugarcoat things or hide things or give an overly cheery picture of something. So even when you see Israel in its initial restoration, there's joy and sadness. And I think as we go through our lives, sometimes we hope when something is restored to me, whether it's by getting a new dog after my old dog died or after um, repenting to my spouse about a sin against them. Like there's joy, but there's also a real sense of sadness because of the reality of loss. And I think instead of just wallowing in that sadness, um, we can experience it and look forward to the kind of restoration that Christ brings on the final day as, as he returns that um, doesn't have that kind of sorrow attached to it. That's the fullness of joy forevermore. So even as we experience pictures of restoration in the present, we still feel the losses that are connected to the need for restoration, and it points us to the day when Jesus will make all things right without the, the joy and the sorrow. To kind of bridge from Ezra to Nehemiah, I wanted to ask what you guys thought about the fact that in both books, there are individuals who repent before the Lord for things that they didn't necessarily sin against God in. So both Ezra and Nehemiah in their prayers of confession ask for forgiveness for the sins of their ancestors and for other people who had remarried. So there's both a corporate sense in their confession, but also uh, reaching back in time to times and places where they didn't even exist yet as they confess sin before the Lord. What do you guys think of that? The idea of confessing on behalf of a community and on behalf of your ancestors who sinned in in a way that you didn't. I'll be honest, I didn't catch that. Where's that at in Ezra? I think I caught it maybe a little bit in Nehemiah, but not in Ezra. Yeah, I mean, I think in Ezra 9... There's uh, this confession of sin where he's ashamed and embarrassed to lift his face toward him. And he prays on behalf of the whole community because of their iniquity and their guilt. But everything that we know about Ezra is he's a stand-up guy. God's grace is on him. He knows the law of Moses. He's living rightly. But he's bringing himself into that community and confessing on their behalf. And their sins that he's talking about go far beyond just that generation, though it definitely includes it. And then Nehemiah, I think, is even more clear as we get to um, chapters 8 and 9, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, chapters 8 and 9 especially. Um, Chapter 9, verse 2, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. So that's interesting to me, and I'd I'd be interested in knowing what you guys think about that, how you process that. I think in general as a concept, it makes sense. The leaders of the people, you know, you have said before, the, the way the king goes, so the nation goes. And so if the king would have repented before God, it would be on behalf of the nation too, mm-hmm. I think, for the wickedness that he led them in or, you know, whatever the situation was. So as a concept, it makes sense to me that that, that 
would happen, you know, that he would be in this situation. I think that's what these books are about, or one book, actually. Um, Ezra Nehemiah, about, I think, the national identity of these people is in crisis. And there are concerns for the purity of the people. And it would make sense for Ezra to offer prayers. The generations, that's the tough, I'm not really sure about that. Um, again, you know, it's probably tied to the where they are in, in history here. Um, their ancestors led them to where they are now. Um, is it actually, you know, what does it mean to confess the sins of people that came before you? I don't, I don't know what that means, but, but as far as like in a prayer connecting current actions to the way the nation has always acted, you know, I don't know if that's a just how he's, he said the prayer. I probably should read, you know, brush up on that, but yeah. those, are, those are kind of off the cuff sure. comments. I don't know. Maybe what do you think about this? Like maybe the reason why he prays, you know, backwards for his ancestors and all that. I mean, would it have something to do with like the same, being that the same sin is still being like perpetuated, um, I, I don't I don't know maybe that has some of the significance of like oh we know that our ancestors sinned and strayed in this way of you know marrying uh, outsiders and we're still doing it so I don't know maybe there's something to it of oh this particular sin has really kind of gotten us through the generations and the lineage like this is serious we need to like be extra serious and extra, I don't know, forceful or extra thoughtful for how we pray against it. I don't know. I don't yeah, know if that's right or not. I think that's definitely part of it. But then there are also sh- sections in this prayer where he's talking about the Israelites who wanted to return to slavery in Egypt and how they made these false gods. So he's also talking about particular acts of sin that they didn't commit. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that is interesting. It's an interesting, yeah, it's like, why, like, why or what's the significance of that or what was his thinking or rationale for that? Why was it necessary? Or he at least felt it was necessary. But yeah, I don't know. That's something else to chew on for a while and think about. Yeah, I don't totally know what to make of it, but this is my brief stab at it. Nice. My, my guess. I, I think what he's doing in this prayer that's recorded in the rest of chapter 9 is he's making moral judgments about the actions of the community in the present, and he recognizes that their present community identity is connected all the way to the past, to the very formation of that community, and he's making moral judgments about the way that they operated. So in the confession of sin— He's not saying necessarily we are guilty for their iniquity, but we are recognizing that our community hasn't done things right. Like we've rebelled against the Lord and we can't separate ourselves from our ancestors. 
So we're going to speak truthfully about the way that they lived and acted before God. And I think that maybe Christians have that same responsibility, we might say, to make moral judgments about the way the Christian church throughout time has operated, sometimes pointing to where the church has failed to operate faithfully before the Lord, and other times making moral judgments that they've acted nobly and faithfully before the Lord. So in our confession before God, we speak truly about our past, you know, even beyond our own experience of the past, but our Christian identity connected to the very formation of the church. So I, I know that this is like a big debate sometimes, like should we confess sin before the Lord or repent for the sins of other people? And I wonder if it gets a little bit confused in what people are actually calling for. But what Nehemiah seems to be doing here is before the Lord making a moral judgment about the actions of the ancestors, not saying we are guilty necessarily for their actions. It's just saying we're connected to them, and we're saying that that's a bad way to live before God. And by calling it for what it is, we are committing not to walk down that same path, whether it's idolatry or complaining or desiring protection and comfort from another nation, whatever it is, by by making that moral judgment, you're also committing not to walk in that way. So giving the parallel with the Christian church, I think we can say Christians have sometimes made wrong actions before the Lord, whether it's through things like slavery or uh, prejudice against the poor or whatever else the case may be. And we can make a moral judgment about that and say that was bad and confess before God that we think that was bad and commit not to do the same thing, while at the same time saying there are other Christians who have walked faithfully before the Lord and we're making a moral judgment about that that was good, and we want to walk in that way too. So there's a way to confess the sins of the church universal throughout time to God that is not saying we're guilty for it, but that we we don't want to live like that lest we become guilty in the same way that they were. So I don't know what you guys think about that. That That's my, my stab at uh, confessing sin corporately and... Um, cross temporally. I think that seems to make sense. Kind of that distinction of the intent that you made. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, our church is in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. So we have a closer proximity to that denomination's sins and faithfulness than we do to like an Anglican church's sins and faithfulness in their history. So when we talk about texts of scripture that address things that Southern Baptists historically have failed on. I think it's right for us to say before the Lord, that was wrong. We're making a moral judgment about that, and we're committing not to continue that practice that's part of our heritage. Um, does, that, does that make sense? I think that's good to do. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it shows the importance of prayer, especially yep. before a major decision or action that needs to take place here, Ezra's calling for many people to divorce their 
pagan spouses, that would be a tough thing for the, the people. He definitely considers carefully Israel's history and finds moral clarity for the present. And I think we, we should carefully consider church history to find clarity, moral clarity for our present way of operating as a church. You mentioned the idea about thinking carefully, and that reminded me of Nehemiah chapter 5, where these nobles are taxing other people and not really operating within the intent of Torah. And in verse 7, he seriously considered the matter before accusing the nobles and officials. And then he called on them to do what is right and to walk in the fear of our God. So I know we don't want to churn every Old Testament book into some moralistic thing, but I think we can learn good morals from the Old Testament. And here's a guy who is not going to make accusations before carefully considering the matter and considering what it looks like to walk rightly before the Lord. And then he calls people to do it. So maybe there's a moral example for us there. In that section, verse 13, where it says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. Just in general, is there anything, um, I don't know, I wonder, is there anything that we should think about just with like that small, I don't know what you'd call it, ritual or act of physically shaking the fold out of his garment. Like it's obviously just, um, I mean, it symbolizes something. I think he's just adding weight to his words by doing something physical. But I don't know. It's just like we don't really do stuff like that nowadays anymore. And I wonder, I don't know, I was just thinking if it's like, if we're prone to be like, well, that's just unnecessary. That doesn't do anything. So we don't do little ritual things like that. Cause like in and of themselves, yeah. Okay. Maybe they would be pointless, but you know, doing them can add either weight or seriousness or commitment or faith because you're doing, you're doing something extra along with the words. I don't know. What, what do you think? I'm not an expert in this area, but I think, there is value in in doing rituals. And so if that little action helps you with something that you're thinking about or trying to do, I'd, I think that's a good thing. I, I, I wouldn't discount rituals because people in the past have misused rituals. Right. Again, that kind of goes back to what Aaron was saying about considering Christian history and how does that, you know, consider that for the future and how, how we do that. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why, at least to me, it seems like we don't really do any little ritual things like that. Maybe it is because either people put too much emphasis on them in the past or did them in weird, wrong ways where it's like, well, we don't want to do that. That The way they did that was wrong. But then you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and miss some, you know, uh, some real value from doing them if they're, you know, done correctly or considered correctly in the context of what you're doing. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Matthew. And I will restrain myself from commenting on this for a long time because you're hitting something that I care a lot about. And I I think that there 
has been, especially within the the Baptist world, a death of ritual, and that's a weakness of our tradition. Um, and I, I think there are things that we should do to compensate for that. And I think we need to start by giving attention to the rituals that we already do, but have stopped doing thoughtfully. So I think the rituals that we do in our church, hopefully we're doing thoughtfully. One of one of them is like when we rent end our scripture reading, we, we say, this is the word of the Lord. And we all respond, thanks be to God as a community of faith. And you'd get the sense that that would fit totally with Ezra and Nehemiah in what they're doing. Um, we also do things like we generally bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray, not because we must do that, but it gives us a posture of humility before the Lord. You know, I think there's great value for people in your when you're praying at your house or by yourself or or with others to kneel before God because you're taking on a posture, a ritual posture that communicates something of what you're doing and it transforms you. Uh, the postures that we take on do that and the actions that we do communicate, you know, there's no such thing as a mere symbol. Symbols are living and shaping. So, um, you know, we have some ritualistic like symbols that we could observe when you're in traffic and someone sticks their middle finger up at you. Well, that does something. Um, so I, I would just recommend to our listeners a little book by Drew Johnson called Human Rights, The Power of Rituals, Habits, and Sacraments. I, this, I think, could be really informative for a lot of people and maybe even enriching as they start to think more about what you're bringing up, Matthew. Yeah, it just, I don't know, made me think, whether it's in my personal, you know, private life or, you know, time with God, being being more thoughtful, maybe doing things even just personally as far as something that might be considered a little bit of a ritual or just like a, a s- small symbol or a small act. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like there, I feel like there definitely is value to it. Obviously if it's done correctly with the correct, you know, heart and the correct intent, but I don't know. I think it, I think it does add value cause it's, we, we do that in a lot of other ways that we probably don't think about or gloss over because it's like, well, that's why most people don't just go to the courthouse in jeans and a T-shirt to get married. Yeah. You have a giant ceremony with friends and you get dressed up the nicest you've ever dressed up because it's important and you're wanting yeah. to show that. So yeah. I think ex- we, we can do that in a lot of other ways in life that we don't think about. Yeah, exchanging rings and everything else. These are rituals. Um, and, and I would say... Yeah, I, I don't want to keep talking too long about this. So to bring it back to our reading, I want to point out a few other ritual-like aspects of their life together, particularly in Nehemiah 8. When Ezra reads the book of the law, he stands on a platform above everyone, which like visually indicates the authority of the word over the people. And we have that somewhat Um, And we have a podium center stage. The center of everything that happens is the exposition of of God's word. Now, unfortunately, we lose some of that symbolism because of the way that 
everything else happens in public life, right? So the rock band is also up on stage at the concert you go to. So some of that might be lost, but he's on a platform above everyone. When he opens the book of the law, all the people stand up, you know, so a lot of churches have this practice of standing for the reading of the word. Um, Ezra blessed the Lord, and then everyone lifted up their hands and said, amen, amen. So your physical posture of raising your hand to receive from the Lord, and then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So I think all of these are rituals that different church traditions adopt in different ways. A lot of Baptist church traditions will be great with people standing up for the reading of the word, but they would not be okay with people putting their hands in the air and then kneeling down to the ground to worship. And we, I think, have to deal with that. We've got to talk about that. And that's a lot of what I dress in our Bible class on worship that you can find on our church website, embodied worship. We're, we're embodied individuals, so we can't ignore these things. We should probably transition now to the book of Romans. We had a massive chunk from Romans. This is unfair of our Bible reading plan to give us Romans 7 through 11, because as some readers will know, or some listeners to this podcast will know, Romans 9 through 11 is one of the most debated passages in Romans, if not all of the New Testament. Uh, And Romans 7 is one of the most debated passages passages in Romans as well, especially when we get to the question of whether or not Paul is describing himself. If so, is he talking as an unbeliever or as a believer or some other option? So many debates have been had about Romans 7. And then his analogy about marriage and uh, the law also raised a lot of questions. But let's dive right in. Um, As you guys read these texts, maybe let's keep our attention to Romans 7 and 8 for the moment. But anything that you guys want to talk about, Romans 7 and 8. Yeah, I just had that question typed down when Paul's ta- saying I. Who's I? Is it Paul? Is it Israel? Is it the third option? I can't remember. Yeah, there, there are a lot of debates here. I don't have a good answer. This is my answer. I think that he's, it's an illustrative I. So in chapter 7, verse 1, he gives an illustration from marriage. And then later on, I think he's just giving an illustrative and not specific example. So that's probably not satisfying to anybody, uh, but I think that makes the most sense. On the first reading, it I don't know, I assumed that it was just talking about Paul, you know, in his personal experience. But then, you know, as I was, you know, reading a little bit, more about the passage, I, I do see how other people argue that either Israel or I think it, it's like Paul is a human as, as like a representative human, like Adam or something was the other, was the other one, but yeah, either way. Yeah. And I don't know that it's as important as people make it. Um, I think we can still really grab onto what Paul is saying without overly agonizing over whether this was an individual who's a believer or an unbeliever. I think the point is that the law is not going to give you the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. But in contrast, chapter 8, the Spirit of God through Christ is going to do that. Um, So then we get into chapter 8, 
which is one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible, probably, one that I think Christians need to read more often. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Um, I, w- I would think anytime we confess our sins to one another and to the Lord, we need to hear this verse in our mind. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, but as you guys read through chapter 8, what, what were your observations? I mean, the verse that you emphasized about no condemnation to those who are in Christ um, kind of made me think a little bit, not to super rewind, but in Nehemiah, when the law was being read and the people were weeping, but then they're like, stop crying, be happy. Like, this is, you know, a good thing. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's kind of that, that made me think of the balance between, you know, being uh, sorrowful over sins that we commit, but then not overly focusing on that and just beating yourself down because you're such a wretched sinner, but focusing on the fact that you can have forgiveness and not be, you know, condemned for it through, through Christ. So I, I guess it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a balance. I, I think it's probably a lot of times hard to find the right balance of sorrow for sin and rejoicing for forgiveness of it. I don't know. It's kind of hard to navigate sometimes. If we had more room in our podcast studio, I would be jumping up and down with excitement at the connection you made there, because I think that's exactly right. You know, the, these people are trying to pursue after the Lord, and the more that they read the scriptures, the more sinful they see that they are. Uh, but they're told, "Look, this is a holy day before the Lord. This, like, yeah, you probably do need to feel bad that you are not complying with God's law." but also feel good because now you know what God's law is and you know his plan for for flourishing and life in the land. And I think Romans 8 is a little bit like that. Like, hey, you doing things on your own, not going to cut it. And you've got issues. But don't be overly depressed by that because you have the source of life in Christ through the Spirit. So even though things are hard, even though you're failing— God is never going to fail you, and you're, you are secured in Christ, so you're free of condemnation and guilt. I think that's great. There's a book that I would want to take the time to recommend here by a guy named Jared C. Wilson called The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together. And this is a really encouraging and helpful book. He says some people just need to read Romans 8 every day for like, I forget how long he says, but for a long time to really just get deep into their souls, the reality that in Christ, they're free from sin and free from condemnation. Uh, And in this chapter, we find great hope, this hope of the resurrection from the dead, the remaking of the world and uh, the glorification of the body as God is glorified forever and ever. As we shift to Romans 9 through 11, What are the questions that you guys have here as we work through a really difficult section of the book of Romans? I can get through all of this. Okay, so do you want me to walk through Paul's argument? I'm fine with that, unless AJ has something he wants to say. He's got notes. I see notes. The man has thoughts. No. 
Okay, we end Romans 8 with this recognition that nothing can separate anyone from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in chapter 9, Paul addresses an objection to that claim that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And the objection is, if God is so faithful and so loving and the work of Christ is so sufficient, why is it that there are so many Israelites who are failing to receive Christ and faithfully follow after God? And why is it that Gentiles seem to be doing the opposite? You know, so why why are God's people not returning to him in any large number? Well, it seems like the Gentiles in large number are. So Paul starts out in chapter 9, verse 6, saying that it's not as though the word of God has failed. And he's trying to say that from the very beginning— God has always been working to redeem the the whole of the world, all of the nations, not just Israel. So he says not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And this gets a little bit complicated in his argumentation. But he begins with this idea that um, as there are descendants all along the line, that the identity as God's people is not connected to your DNA, but to faith and faithfulness in in the promise. So it's not like both of Abraham's sons with, you know, Hagar and with Sarah are considered children of the promise. So it's not connection to Abraham that's going to do it. So the objection might be, okay, that that's a bad argument because uh, you know, Ishmael was not Abraham and Sarah's son, it was Abraham and Hagar's son. So that kind of invalidates it. So then he gives another example of Jacob and Esau, who are both from the same father and mother. And he's saying, look, even here, there are offspring of, of the Abrahamic line who reject God. So this, is, this has always been the case. So then here's the question, because he, he says that God hated Esau, essentially even before Esau was born, right? Uh, So this is the question, is God unjust? So he already said God isn't unfaithful or God isn't fallible. Now the question is, is God unjust? Is he unjust? The answer is absolutely not. And his answer is a little bit confusing and maybe not convincing to some, but pretty much he just says this is God's character to show compassion on who he will. God doesn't owe this to anybody, but he's going to show compassion on who he's going to show compassion on. And ultimately, he's going to do so in a way that brings his name glory. So don't be upset at God for for this distinction. Uh, but ultimately, you need to recognize that throughout God, throughout time, God has been drawing people to his name, some who are of the DNA line of Abraham and some who are not. And ultimately, the goal is God's glory. So that's Romans 9. And then he gets into chapter 10. And here he's saying, but still, I want, I want everybody to come to faith in Christ. But people don't have to work hard to get there. God has brought that salvation and love and mercy to them. So it's not um, like God has failed. God has done his part in bringing the message to the people, and anyone who wants it can have it. So it's not God's fault. So here again, he's 
maybe protecting God's justice and mercy a little bit to say, God isn't at fault here. He's not failing. He's not unjust. It's the people who are rejecting it. So what do we do with this conundrum? That there are still unbelievers? Well, it's that we need to proclaim the good news. That's the way that faith will come. It's through a proclamation of the gospel, and it needs to go not just to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. So the question is, is God failing? No. Is God unjust? No. Well, then what are we supposed to do about this? Preach the gospel. But then he gets to chapter 11, and another question is raised. Okay, so God's not unjust. He's not failing. It's, it's the people's fault. We're preaching the gospel, and it seems like people aren't responding. So his God rejected Israel. And then he answers, absolutely not. It's like, even in my salvation, there's proof that God hasn't rejected Israel. God, God is working to save a remnant. He always has. He always will. But this is taking place in the matrix of God working to save all people across the planet. Right? So that's where he gets into this olive tree grafting in of the Gentiles to make one tree. He's doing something bigger and grander than just redeeming Israel. He's redeeming the whole world. And in that way, all the Gentiles who will be saved will be saved through God's work. And all the Israelites who will be saved will be saved through God's work. This is the gospel that's being preached. Um, And then he ends with this doxology and praise. So where it started out with questions about whether God is actually merciful and just, whether or not God is actually powerful to save, questions about whether or not God is actually faithful to his people, well, we end with the right answer about the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Uh, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's a really challenging text of scripture because Paul is dealing with really challenging questions and questions that we're not asking. At least most of us aren't asking because we're not really concerned about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles who come to faith. There's obviously a lot more that we could get into there, but it is so complex that it would be challenging to walk through all of that in a podcast episode like this. But I would say if you're interested in reading more about what might be going on there, I'd be happy to talk with you or to point you to commentaries that would be really helpful. We have not done a sermon series through Romans, so I can't point you to that. Um, But hopefully someday we'll get through the book of Romans and be able to have that as a resource for helping you read and understand this book. Well, guys, I want to encourage you in your reading as we go into yet another week, as we press into August, as we continue to read these scriptures. Let's continue to learn and grow, and particularly for those who are at our church, uh, not tomorrow, well, tomorrow, by the time you're listening to this, probably, I'll be teaching on the conscience in our Bible class, and we'll be examining Romans 14 and 15 for that. So your Bible reading for the week will prepare you well for for that Bible class. So I'd say give extra attention to that text of scripture, those two chapters, as you read a very large amount of scripture in the coming week. Thank you for joining us. This is the Resurrection Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about all things Resurrection Church, you can visit our website, resurrectionmn.org.